Hey, you're listening to the free version of the Ring of Fire radio podcast. And this week uh, taught me a, uh, an interesting lesson. As you know, at the uh, beginning of the week, I was fired from MSNBC. By the end of the week, I was rehired by MSNBC. And the one way I believe that happened was because of the tremendous amount of support that, uh, that I got online and off, frankly. And I think there was uh, really three groups who were, who were really invested in this, and, and not so much because of me, but because of, of what uh, it came to represent. I think journalists were, were really keyed into this because they are tired of being uh, scrutinized and not backed up by their media outlets at a time where their value as a, a labor to management is diminished because of the nature of that industry and uh, the nature of our system, broadly speaking. I also think uh, it was a, or at least I hope it was, a, a victory for folks who are tired of the alt-right and, frankly, the right for attacking our institutions, our norms, and really just attacking a basic sense of reality. And lastly, I hope uh, this is seen as beginning to dismantle the notion that somehow the movement to hold sexual harassers and predators and to hold those who uh, perpetuate the rape culture in our society accountable, that it begins to undercut the notion that somehow this is a, a runaway train. In fact, Many people complain about the so-called outrage machine, but I will say that it's pretty clear from the support that I got from communities that care about this issue at this moment in time, that so-called outrage machine is perfectly capable of making a sober and uh, level-headed analysis of, uh, of certainly of what I tweeted. So I think it's vindication for a movement at a time where there's a lot of hand-wringing about what happens if people get accused of things that they didn't do. Well, in this instance, I was accused of writing a tweet that was willfully misrepresented, and I had a lot of support uh, for people who care about um, holding sexual predators to account. So enjoy this uh, free version of the podcast, but know when you support a program like this directly as a member, you are limiting the leverage that people like Mike Cernovich have uh, over our ability to bring you the truth to the best of our ability every day. So if you're interested, head over to rofpodcast.com. But thank you for listening either way. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. Today on Ring of Fire Radio, investigator Catherine Hawkins will join us to talk about a secret ruling that has broken the Guantanamo military commissions. 
Joshua Holland from The Nation magazine will explain why the Republican tax bill is nothing more than a plan to loot the Treasury before the midterm elections. Heather Digby Parton from Salon will be here to run down the most important news stories from the past week. And to author Gary Rivlin will stop by to talk about his new book, Wall Street's White House, How Gary Cohn Wrecked the Global Economy and Parlayed It into a White House Job. Don't forget, you can go to rofpodcast.com and sign up for the free one-hour version of the Ring of Fire radio podcast. And if you want the full show, commercial-free, become a member. That's the best way to support this program. That's rofpodcast.com. Here to help me run down some of the biggest headlines of the past week, Heather Parton from Salon, or as you may know her, Digby. So, Heather, uh, lots of news this week. This week's a little bit different than uh, past weeks in terms of news because uh, I was a little bit of a part of it. If uh, people hadn't uh, caught up with this, I was fired as my uh, role as a contributor on MSNBC. I was not um, one of the more prominent uh, contributors on that network, but I would go on usually uh, once a week on the uh, Chris Hayes program. And I had been, you know, a paid per appearance contributor for, I believe, three years. I've been on uh, MSNBC as a as a commentator since 2004. At one point I filled in for uh, for Keith Olbermann uh, back right before he left the network. I filled in for uh, Chris Hayes when he had his weekend show. And it was based upon a tweet that I had tweeted in 2009 in response to attempts to rehabilitate uh, Roman Polanski's um, record and invite him back uh, to the country. There was a petition going around in Hollywood, and I tweeted out, you know, fairly racy, a piece of satire, which was, forget about Polanski, and I'm paraphrasing, if my uh, daughter, uh, however, if my daughter is uh, ever raped, I hope it's by a much older man who has a great sense of mise-en-scene, which was to express my outrage at this. And I got a call from MSNBC that Mike Cernovich, the the Pizzagate progenitor, I guess, and the uh, white supremacy uh, guy and the uh, guy who denies a date rape uh, and uh, I, I could go on, who was actually charged with rape and pled down to a misdemeanor assault. Uh, that guy apparently had highlighted my tweet and uh, they decided to fire me because they were afraid of uh, the bad publicity. I had other tweets that if people didn't get the original uh, piece of the um, intent of that satire that uh, supported it. But uh, so that's the story. And there's a bigger story to this. I think, you know, Digby, you've been following the the, the corporate media f- over the past 15, 20 years in a similar fashion as I have. And this is an ongoing problem. Oh, it certainly is. I mean, let's just take a little bit of a historical look at at how this works. I mean, this goes back, as far as I can tell, back to the early 90s. And some of the players who are playing today in this pool were playing in it back then. I'm thinking specifically of a guy by the name of David Bossy, who was the deputy campaign manager for Donald Trump and the head of a group called Citizens United, which is the group that took the case to the Supreme Court that unleashed all that corporate money and big money into the election system, which was about a a hit job movie that had been done about Hillary Clinton back 
in 2008. Um, this has been his job since the early 1990s. He has um, put out spurious rumors and, and basically, uh, you know, injected bad faith accusations into the mainstream about uh, liberals, progressives, and Democrats in office. And it's been tremendously successful for the reason that you cite. It's because the mainstream media has never, ever figured out how to deal with it, or actually, I shouldn't even put it that way. They've expressed no desire to deal with it. They are perfectly happy to go along with this stuff, whether it's, you know, being fed this kind of juicy information about some people that, that you know, about certain public figures or politicians that, you know, really has no basis in fact, but they, you know, it sounds good. There's just enough of it to kind of give them a news peg and they run with it. They also are completely cowardly when it comes to attacks on members of their own teams when the when the right wing does this. And, you know, this has been a style that's been going on for 25 years, at, at least. I mean, you know, some of this goes back into the Nixon years of, you know, what they called rat f***ing back in the, in the early 70s. But this particular uh, mode really took off in the early 90s, and it's been a feature of their political style ever since then. In the Obama years, this was very much... Um, you know, illustrated by James O'Keefe and Project Veritas, who was still out there doing this. They're complete fools. They're they're idiots, but they accomplished some very, very important things in the Obama Definitely. years. They took down a group called ACORN, which was a very effective work, group for voter registration in, in urban areas, helping out the poor, working as a as a you know an advocacy group for Democrats. They took them out with a phonied up doctored up set of uh, videos that not only the media but the the democratic establishment you know panicked when they saw it and and basically destroyed the group they did the same thing with a woman named Shirley Sherrod who they doctored up Breitbart and his group in affiliation with with O'Keefe doctored up a tape of her saying something that wasn't true and everybody panicked and dropped her immediately this is, you know, they have this amazing ability to get every, to scare the hell out of everybody. And, and for whatever reason, the mainstream media and the Democratic Party never seem to learn that they're being played for fools. And it happens over and over again. And in this era of Trump, I mean, this is a vicious group now. This guy that went after you, Sam, is particularly... Um, you know, I mean, he is a very vicious guy who you know, is putting together conspiracy theories beyond anything we've ever seen before. He was the yes. guy behind Pizzagate. So the fact that MSNBC would fall for that in a clear case, I mean, this is not even debatable. It was total satire. This is you were actually making the opposite argument of what they're claiming you made. It's obvious to anyone with a brain. This is, you know, this is creeping cretinism, as far as I'm concerned. The inability to actually deal with reality anymore. And there's MSNBC just kind of running along with it. It's absolutely terrifying to me that, that is... they wouldn't protect you in that situation. I mean, if they won't, who will? And 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 you know, I, I this is the fundamental point in my in my mind that you, you're making here, and it's not even a context. It's not even a question of of protection. 
It's a question, it seems to me, of assessment. We got to take a break, but Digby, when we come back, I, I want to uh, talk about this because this is um, that fundamental point. I mean, look, I um, uh, I'm I'm happy not to have to shave as often uh, and, and whatnot, but. The, the the problem here is so much uh, greater and larger than my situation, and it, it has implications for our entire society. And I think you've touched on it. I want to talk about it a little bit more when we come back. There's obviously a lot more happening in the news. This this really what is going to be devastating um, uh, tax uh, so-called reform that um, is at least working its way through the the House and the Senate. Uh, we will talk about that, of course, later in the show. But I want to take a quick break. I want to come back and continue this conversation. I'm talking to the great Digby, Heather Parton. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. Hey, folks, Mike Papantonio's new book entitled Law and Vengeance, which is the follow up to his critically acclaimed novel, Law and Disorder, is finally out and available to you to buy. The book is a legal and political thriller drawing on Pap's experience both as a skilled trial lawyer and as a nationally syndicated political talk show host. The story follows trial lawyer Gina Romano, who was first introduced in Law and Disorder on her quest for both vengeance and justice in a whistleblower lawsuit against a weapons manufacturer who developed and sold a dangerously defective rifle scope. Pap has built a story around real-life events that he's encountered as one of the top trial lawyers in America, where he's been fighting some of the world's largest and most corrupt corporations. Buy Mike Papantonio's new book, Law and Vengeance, today. Go to www.lawandvengeance.com. That's lawandvengeance.com. Check it out. I know you're going to love it. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar here with Heather Digby Parton from Salon. So, Digby, uh, we've been talking about, uh, in part, at least a conversation about the the media's role in our society in the face of this. And it's not new, but these these sort of weaponized actions by the right, ranging from Breitbart and O'Keefe, now Mike Cernovich where false memes and narratives and uh, stories start to become weaponized and are used to destroy people, institutions on the left, <laughs> frankly, that, uh, you know, in, in the service of a right-wing political goal. I mean, this goes back, and we'll talk uh, about Al Franken later in the program, but this goes back to uh, the liars and the lying liars, uh, when uh, they they lied about what happened at Paul Wellstone's funeral. Right. And, I mean, I, I'm sure there are examples prior to that, but that's one that really sort of sticks out in my mind where they weaponized Paul Wellstone's funeral. And it was, you know, look, there was recordings of it. There was video. I mean, it was all, but it was, it was, it was faked. It was all faked. And, and here's the point as, as, as and, and you've touched on this a little bit, but I want to just carry this a little bit further. My tweet, like you said, anybody who speaks English as a first or second language and, ha- and is over the age of 14 
understood what I was expressing at that tweet. And the backlash against MSNBC's interpretation, I think, is is, is pretty clear and would edify them. I, mean, I, I had supporters from Infowars, from uh, all sides of the left, from, you know, people, uh, Eric Erickson, who's, uh, you know, blocked me on Twitter for as long as I can remember. Okay. I mean, it came from everywhere because it was so quite it was so quite so uh, so so obvious. And yeah. here is the problem is that. I understand. I mean, they uh, the the Cernovich uh, flying monkeys attacked my podcast. They scared off uh, some advertisers. I don't know if they'll come back. They might. Hopefully they will. But they certainly got scared. And I can understand it. If you're a company that sells soap, right? As soon as you see controversy, you want to step away from that. You don't have Mm -hmm. the apparatus. You don't have the expertise. You don't have the responsibility of determining what is at the heart of that controversy. How, how can I assess this? You're just not capable of doing it. I mean, it would be nice if some of our corporations had a little bit more backbone. And certainly uh, a company like Midroll, which represents me to advertisers, was great about it. But, but I don't have high expectations. I understand that. But if you are a media company yeah. who has millions of dollars, everything that your company is about has the apparatus to assess controversies, to assess events, to determine that... Hey, when this person stands outside and looks up at 12 o'clock in the afternoon and says it's nighttime, that that person is wrong. And if the media could not make that assessment, if the media refuses to make that assessment, then it's all fake news. And in some respects, this is what has been going on for years. The, The refusal of the media to make a common sense assessment about claims, about, um, you know, uh, accounts, uh, about uh, projections, and simply call it out from the beginning. And they, you know, they started to do it with Donald Trump a little bit. It almost seems like they backed off that as, as a, um, but, you know, the reason why is because they were doing catch up. And they still obviously like, look, this was quite obvious. This is a company that I, that I appeared on for 14 years. They, they had every single bit of information to make an assessment and they refused to do it. And if they refuse to do it, then what's the point? What's the point of them being a news media outlet? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it's terrifying to me because if and, you know, when I said before, you know, they should have protected you, I really should say they should have protected the First Amendment and they should have protected, you know, just reason. The idea that someone making a satirical point to, and something very, very obviously you were you were saying in that tweet. I mean, this is really what gets me. You were you were basically, um, you know, you were criticizing the people who were defending Roman Polanski. Yes, rape apologists. And, I mean, to me, this is like if the if the British government had put Jonathan Swift in jail for, uh, you know, endorsing cannibalism. I mean, that, you know, that when he did the modest proposal, I mean, this is satire. You know, you have to be able to understand what that is. You ha- there cannot be. I mean, if we're so dumb in this country that we're not going to say that satire is going to be taken literally and anybody who uses it is going to be on the receiving end of, of some political attack. It's, it's an, we are dumbing ourselves down into oblivion. We can't function this way. I mean, this is not, I mean, uh, you know, your tweet and it's not was even not satire. that I mean, look, sophisticated, for crying we, out loud. It was we all obvious. know, I mean, it's like, we all know what time flies means. 
right? Yes. We don't literally mean that time flies through the air. We means it goes fast. You know, we, when we say time will tell, we're not saying time has the ability to speak. It, it is that things will be... Re- I mean, we do this all the time with idioms. Uh, irony and satire, they're no different. You know, it, 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 it was quite obvious. A reasonable person could be more than expected to do this. And, and, and that seems to me to be a very low bar when you have exactly. all of these other abilities to assess the context of that uh, statement. Of course. And, and by the way, I mean, this bad faith argument on the part of these right-wingers and some of the people who were making a big deal out of this, I mean, they were basically laughing as they were doing it. Everybody could tell. that. I mean, they in no way were defending the poor victims of Roman Polanski in this. We, these are people who are about to go vote for Roy Moore. They're people who, you know, are big fans of Donald Trump. I mean, the, the people who were making the argument, it was such in such obvious, clear, bad faith that the idea that a media company couldn't sort that out, I mean, in fact, you would think they would have wanted to make a story out of it. There's something happening there. That's very interesting. Right. You've got the President of the United States calling them fake news every day and saying that they are, you know, that nothing they put out is correct. And here you have an example of how this is actually working on the right in total bad faith, and they just basically punted. And, you know, I mean, it's not really about you, although for me, as, as a friend and a colleague, I'm horrified that this happened. But this is an illustration of a much, yep. much bigger problem, and it's I... absolutely terrifying to me. I don't know where we go from here. I don't either, but I do know that we'll be back because we have a break right now. Uh, Digby, if you'll join me in the next hour, we've got a lot more news to talk about. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. Just ahead, we'll find out how Gary Cohn wrecked the global economy and was rewarded by a job in the White House. I'm Sam Cedar. You're listening to Ring of Fire Radio. Standing in the corner, studying the lights. Folks, the Ring of Fire is sponsored by JustCoffee.coop. That's JustCoffee.coop. If you like fair trade, delicious coffee, tea, or chocolate, head over to JustCoffee.coop. Use the coupon code MAJORITY and get 10% off. There's free shipping. You have no reason not to get this great coffee. It's a great outfit in Madison, Wisconsin, which supported the protest there. JustCoffee.coop. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. Subject of our next guest book was partially to blame for creating the conditions that led to the 2008 financial crash. Here to explain how Gary Cohn was able to profit from the crash and parlay that experience into a job at the White House is Pulitzer Prize winner Gary Rivlin, author of the new book, Wall Street's White House, How Gary Cohn Wrecked the Global Economy and Parlayed It into a White House Job. So, uh, Gary, let's let's start by uh, you telling us who who exactly is, and I think our audience is familiar with. But give us a sense of how it is that Gary Cohn ended up um, ended up in the White House. Right. So, Gary Cohn, director of National Economic Council, which in English means he's 
uh, Donald Trump's top economic advisor, has an office uh, in the White House, not far from the Oval Office. He was the president of Goldman Sachs. Really, really kind of an interesting story. Uh, unlike many of the plutocrats who are running our country, was not born with a silver spoon uh, in his mouth. Actually, had a pretty rough childhood. Was dyslexic long before folks knew how to deal with that. And you know, was in four or five elementary schools. Got in fights. Our president has boasted that he punched his second grade teacher, music teacher, in the face. It turns out that he. He did not. He, uh, Trump has confessed he hasn't done that. But Gary Cohn did. In fifth grade, he was frustrated with the teacher and punched him. So, you know, his, his parents are told, like, if told, uh, were told if he was a truck driver, they should be happy. Uh, through true grit, becomes a, a aluminum, uh, aluminum siding salesperson, talks his way into a job on the commodities exchange, um, think trading places, think trading, you know, coffee futures and that kind of stuff. And eventually gets a job doing the same at Goldman Sachs in the uh, 1980s, a real plugger, a real hard worker, a real smart guy, a uh, real aggressive, uh, the kind who would just like run through walls to succeed, uh, ties himself to Lloyd Blankfein, uh, who became the CEO of Goldman Sachs in 2000, mid-2000s, and named uh, Cohn first as co-president. There was a fellow president, um, but Gary Cohn's a really good player, and within a couple of years, he had pushed that guy out and was the... Uh, president of Goldman Sachs until being named um, Trump's chief economic advisor. Now, I mean, what was what, what? Just give us a sense. I mean, I, I, I am, and 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 we will move forward in history to sort of understand why Gary Cohn stayed uh, when there was uh, pressure on him in particular uh, because of the what was going on in Charlottesville and the apparent, you know, explicit uh, endorsement of at least some of the Nazis who were marching. Uh, and Gary Cohn is Jewish. Uh, so yes. He got extra pressure. He, uh, pressure. He, well, he was singled out um, by outside organizations trying to pressure someone within the Trump administration to acknowledge the ugliness. Of yes. Before we get there, though, let's go back. Like, why? When? When? You know, what is it about Gary Cohn that made him say yes to a Donald Trump, because that's not um, it's not, you know, you look at Donald Trump, the the, the crew that he's assembled, um, there's not necessarily it doesn't look like the A team. Let's put it that way. I mean, I think that's fair to say to the extent that there are people of of expertise, um, they they tend to come from military background and there's some, you know, uh, they are at the very least have a pedigree that would make it hard for them to say no to a president. Uh, There were a lot of people who I think uh, said no to Donald Trump. Was, Was Gary Cohn going into this administration in some way to sort of save the country uh, or was it uh, what was his agenda, do you think? Right. So so Gary Kona, a a lifelong Democrat, you look at his political giving, and especially since 2010 and Dodd-Frank, the financial uh, regulations that were put into place after the 2008 meltdown, uh, you know, he he had given more, as did other, as did did Goldman Sachs folks generally, they'd given more to Republicans than Democrats, but always a, a registered uh, Democrat had nothing to do with Donald Trump prior to um, Trump winning the election. Uh, it's a, it's a great mystery if you ask me, having spent you know a few months studying the man, writing about uh, him, uh, ambition. Some of it was that he was the number two at, at Goldman Sachs with um, a number one who wasn't going anywhere, so he was stuck. 
I mean, here's an opportunity. He had a, it's, it's interesting. A, a few weeks after um, the election, uh, Gary Cohn met for the first time uh, Donald Trump, a president-elect Trump at that time, and just was being called in to advise on economic policies, impresses uh, Trump during that conversation. Trump's people reach out to Cohn, and to everyone's shock, including people in, with, inside Goldman Sachs, he said, yes, you know, the take on Gary Cohn, I would argue with it, we can argue with it, uh, is that he's uh, the moderate, the adult in the room that will prevent bad things from happening, just like the generals are supposedly going to stop bad things from happening on the international front. Here's someone who's well-respected, has relationships with the CEOs of every uh, for or most of the Fortune 500 co- companies in our country, gave, gives Trump a, gave Trump an immediate uh, legitimacy. I mean, just to kind of go in the wayback machine a year ago, you know, uh, or uh, pe- people people didn't know what to expect on Wall Street uh, from Donald Trump. They were scared, and you know, here you name Gary Cohn and gives it legitimacy. You know, to me, it was ambition and also. He had been pushing the Goldman Sachs agenda for years as the number two at Goldman Sachs. He was often the guy going to D.C., making the case to regulators uh, and such to legislators to change policy. You know, here he had a chance to really implement the Goldman Sachs agenda. Uh, let's roll back financial regulation. Let's have a huge corporate uh, tax uh, tax cut. Uh, let's privatized infrastructure. The Trump agenda and the Goldman agenda are now essentially one and the same. That is, um, I mean, I, I'm not surprised, and um, and and I guess I'm not that shocked. But I guess when you put it, um, when you can sum it up in that sentence. That is stunning based upon the conventional wisdom that we were told was Donald Trump's appeal, Um, you know, for those who did not accept that there was a massive racial component to this. The idea that um, Donald Trump's agenda would meld with Goldman Sachs, I guess uh, put another way, I don't think there would be that level of excitement. Uh, amongst the red-hatted MAGA followers if he opened up with a promise, I promise you, um, you know, we will make America Goldman Sachs again. Well, I mean, uh, I'll just remind people of the obvious that when Donald Trump ran was running for president, uh, first took on Ted Cruz, whose wife, uh, Heidi, uh, had worked for years at Goldman Sachs. And then, of course, Hillary Clinton, for her connections right. to Goldman Sachs, the paid speeches, the support from Goldman Sachs. So he actually made President uh, uh, Candidate Trump made Goldman Sachs his stand-in uh, for the kind of uh, uh, corporate interest, global interest, that's taking money from the hardworking people in the heartland uh, and transferring to Wall Street. In fact, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, in that final weekend commercial, great commercial actually from Trump, uh, a couple minutes long, right before the election, uh, Lloyd Blankfein was one of the images when he spoke about, I'm going to stand up um, to Wall Street, to the, the moneyed interest. Those people who don't really do anything, they just move money around and get rich rather than right. you know, investing in factories and creating jobs. Uh, and also he you know, the, the, the 
defiantly, deliberately, loudly uh, campaigned against Goldman Sachs. And at one point when Scaramucci, in the 10 or 11 days that Anthony Scaramucci was part of the administration, Trump had five uh, Goldman Sachsers in top positions, or six if you include Jay Clayton, head of the SEC, who was a lawyer for Goldman Sachs and whose wife, uh, until his nomination, until his appointment, uh, worked at Goldman Sachs. All right. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about um, the 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 reasons why Gary Cohn stuck with uh, Donald Trump through there. And then I want to pivot to to what's happening um, in terms of uh, Dodd Frank uh, being un, un, uh, unraveled and uh, this this tax deal. How much of this is the uh, you know from the Golden Sachs uh, Goldman Sachs wish list? And to the extent that it might be a lot, what does that tell us about the fact that um, that Cohn was a, a Democrat before he joined this administration? We got to take a quick break. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. Back on Ring of Fire Radio, I'm Sam Cedar. Right now, I am talking to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Gary Rivlin about his new book, Wall Street's White House, How Gary Cohn Wrecked the Global Economy and Parlayed It into a White House Job. So, Gary, one of the things that um, I think I became most, most attenuated, or, you know, to the extent that I have, like, kept my eye on Gary Cohn uh, throughout this administration... um, you know, because Steve Mnuchin has has garnered a lot more of the tension. Of course, he's the, the Treasury Secretary, uh, but was particularly during the uh, the, the Charlottesville uh, time because uh, Gary Cohn was one of at least uh, I guess two administration members, uh, Mnuchin being the other one. But particularly for some reason, Gary Cohn um, was getting a lot of attention because he was working for someone, and um, who I think. Any reasonable person would agree, at the very least, was giving implicit uh, approval for um, Nazis to have their say, and not on the grounds of civil libertarian uh, perspective, but more so from like, hey, these uh, some of these guys are nice guys, and um, uh, you know, there was. There was clearly a concern on Trump's part. I don't want to alienate part of my base. And the idea that Gary Cohn, who was Jewish, um, would have no problem with that, short of leaking to a couple of reporters, I might have a problem with that, but i got to stick around for blank. Um, just give me uh, your sense of your reporting. Like, you know, What was, was really behind that? Uh, I heard rumors that it had to do with his desperate desire to be Fed chair. Right. So, so uh, he, he did... Uh, in an interview, I think it was with the Financial Times. Uh, it's interesting. Every interview he does is if he's still the CEO, excuse me, the president of Goldman Sachs. It's always with CNBC, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the FT. But, you know, he, 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 he did, you know, voice his displeasure, had one of those mild, mild uh, denouncements that aren't a denouncement, but explain that he was staying because there's still an important agenda to follow. And I think we're all seeing exactly what that agenda was I mean his top priority was to cut the corporate tax uh, co- 
cut corporate taxes, uh, he was hoping for a 58% cut, and it ended up being a 43% cut in corporate taxes. But I think Gary Cohn stayed around um, because he wanted to see corporate uh, taxes cut. And in fact, if you look at what it means, assuming what's on the table will will be finalized, which I assume it's going to be, um, Goldman Sachs is going to save around $1 billion, $1 billion a year, uh, in taxes. All their clients on Wall Street are going to save billions and billions of dollars. So I think eyes wide open, knowing and understanding who Donald Trump was, knowing and understanding that he was giving some legitimacy to Charlottesville and the ugliness that we're all seeing, uh, he stuck around and is now getting what he, what he wanted, the, the corporate tax cut. It's interesting, but before Charlottesville, I would have described Gary Cohn as one of Donald Trump's two or three top advisors. After that, there are all these reports that Trump wouldn't even look him in the eye. I mean, Trump, for all the, you know, your fired boldness, he isn't bold at all. He's sort of kind of cowardly in that human way where he can't confront his displeasure. He just avoided uh, Cohn and before Charlottesville, Cohn was a favorite to become uh, the next Fed chair. In fact, uh, Trump had assigned Cohn the task of finding his next uh, Fed chair and, you know, Cohn and Dick Cheney-like style when he was named to find George W. Bush's next vice president chose himself. Uh, Cohn nominated himself as one of the top choices. I actually think he might have gotten it if it wasn't for Charlottesville, but he angered Trump enough where he was not going to give Gary Cohn that reward. And I think Cohn has stuck around uh, to see corporate tax uh, cuts. He's got it. I'm actually thinking there's a pretty good chance that you know he'll 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 be leaving sooner rather than later. Right. And there seems to be some at least um, scuttlebutt to that effect. And what I mean in terms of the Dodd Frank was there? Do you think there was a prize that he was looking for in terms of of, of unwinding that law? Right. So, so Dodd Frank is uh, is is trickier because uh, you need 60 votes in the Senate. Uh, to to uh, undo to remake Dodd Frank, there's something. I would, going let me this. let me restate then, because I, I guess from a statutory standpoint, but there's a lot of. I mean, one of the criticisms of Dodd Frank is is that it's a package. It's a large package that uh, attempts to do things from a surgical perspective. We've already seen some regulatory changes um, that um, defang Dodd-Frank, that changes the, the bar for a higher level of scrutiny on banks and their capitalization. So within that framework, put aside from the statutory standpoint, from within the framework of what is available for administration to do, in terms of, you know, saying to different re- regulatory agencies, you know what, we have a certain uh, discretion here, roll back on that. What do you think What do you think the prize was to the extent that there was one for a Gary Cohn? Right, so, so there's, there's a, the legislative changes, which I don't think are going to happen or only going to happen around the margins. Uh, but on the other hand, Dodd-Frank, the way it was written, left a lot of, up to the regulatory bodies, the Securities and Exchange Committee, uh, Commission, the FDIC. And so 
what you're seeing is is a victory on behalf of the, the big banks and Wall Street by a lack of of regulation. I think what you're going to see moving forward, given the people that President Trump has put into those positions, is you won't see the same kind of enforcement. You're going to see some rules that Dodd Frank. In fact, you're already seeing rules that Dodd Frank uh, instructed. Uh, the various agencies to implement, believe it or not, <laughs> despite it being passed in 2010, it wasn't fully completed. And you're seeing um, the various agencies under the Trump administration dropping those. Uh, one of them is that you know uh, publicly traded companies have to uh, reveal the pay disparity between the CEO and the median income of your average employees, which is you know 300 to one, 400 to one, 500 to one. So this was a provision thrown into Dodd Frank to at least. Uh, uh, give us transparency, show us the kind of disparity that's going on inside these companies. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Trump uh, appointees are saying, yeah, we don't want to do that. Uh, that, that doesn't make any sense uh, to us. So, you know, there, there, there is this victory. You don't have to win in the legislative arena uh, to, to win the way Dodd-Frank was written. And, you know, moreover, you know, it's one regulator's uh, a uh, crime is another one's. I'm going to look the other way. I don't care. Right. Uh, this is going on. So that's really the big fear that you know the kind of the rules in place. But we see with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau under Richard Cordray, who just stepped down, very aggressive, very strong agency under Mick Mulvaney. Uh, it's assumed that they're just going to stop um, uh, doing the job they were assigned to do. Uh, and all right, we just have a minute left. But what does it say that Gary Cohn was a, a Democrat? Uh, during this time, yeah, you know the the view is that like oh he and Javanka Jared and you know uh, Ivanka um, uh, Kushner you know they're the moderates. <laughs> I don't see a forty three percent corporate uh, tax cut as, as moderate. I don't see this idea that less than ten years after a disastrous financial crash we should roll back regulations and have regulators be put on the sideline. You know, I, I think he has a radical agenda. It's not the same a radical it's not the same radical agenda of a uh, Steve Bannon, but it's radical in the sense that, you know, Wall Street uh gets to have its way again and that's what Donald Trump campaigned right. against. It, it, I'm not going to be an administration that's too cozy with Wall Street like Democrats and Republicans have been. And yet that's exactly what's happening. It's exactly what we're seeing happen. Gary Rivlin, uh, the book is Wall Street's White House, How Gary Cohn Wrecked the Global Economy and Parlayed It into a White House Job. Co-wrote that with Michael Hudson. Thank you so much for your time today, Gary. Really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. When we come back, Heather Digby Parton will join us to analyze more news from the past week. That's just ahead. I'm Sam Cedar. You're listening to Ring of Fire Radio. Check out rofpodcast.com to support the show and hear what you're missing. <laughs> 